Turn with me tonight to uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. It's good to be in the house of the Lord tonight. Thankful for what I've felt in my heart already and being here amongst you. You that are Bible readers, you already know what the subject is tonight. 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, the first 10 verses. The Word of God says this. It says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same uh, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which... The heavens shall pass away with the great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And that's the reading of Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And the title tonight is The Intervention of the Second Coming. The Intervention of the Second Coming. Now, we begin to look at this scripture and we see that uh, Peter is indicating that this is the second letter that he has written. Um, to uh, this group of strangers is what they're referred to as the strangers that are scattered abroad in uh, Galatia and Asia and Cappadocia and Pontus. He states that in the first uh, chapter of First Peter. Um, those Gentile Christians that have been scattered uh, into what is now today northern uh, Turkey. And uh, he had uh, another message for them. And uh, he, he tells them here, I want to stir up your pure mind. I want to stir up your spiritual mind onto the things of God. So often our minds are just, they seem to get distracted very easily on things of the world. Very easily. Uh, but he says, I want to stir up your spiritual mind tonight and stir it up by way of remembrance that you might remember about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, uh, it seems like it's so easy for us to forget what the Lord has done for us. That's why it's such a blessing when you think about and keep on the forefront of your mind your salvation experience and what the Lord did when He saved your soul and what He brought you from. And I find for myself that if I keep that on the front forefront of my mind, uh, that it makes me think about those that are lost a lot more frequently. And it makes me be compassionate toward other people thinking about what God brought me out of and what I would have gotten into had He not saved me at such a young age. But there are plenty of things that we need to remember tonight. You uh, you recall how that even one of the ordinances in the church, the Lord's Supper, is really for the sole purpose of remembrance, 
of remembering the Lord Jesus' death until He come. Uh, but He stirs up. He wants to stir up in their minds a remembrance of the second coming. Notice that He says here, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us the apostles of the Lord and Savior. I, I think he's, he's telling them here, hey, I want you to remember about the continuity that we find in the scriptures from the Old Testament prophets to the New Testament apostles all about the second coming of Christ. Uh, we find this harmonious thought throughout the scriptures about the second coming. If you go over into the book of Jude, and you might say, well, where is the second coming referenced in the Old Testament? In the book of Jude, we find, and Jude is a parallel passage uh, with Second Peter, uh, which just means two parallel lines are going the same way and there's a space between them. A uh, parallel passage just means that they're, they're the same thoughts in two different areas of the Scripture. In the book of Jude, though, remember in verse 14 how that uh, the context here is that uh, Jude is speaking out against false teachers, just like uh, Peter was in Second Peter chapter 2. And he says uh, in verse 14, and this had to be by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he uh, received this knowledge. He says, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these. Or he told beforehand what was going to happen to these false teachers. Wait, you mean there was false teachers even in the early days of Genesis? There must have been. Because Enoch was prophesying about what was going to happen uh, to these false teachers. He says, saying, behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Look, uh, Enoch was able to look through the first coming of the Lord Jesus to see the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And he said to what, what he was going to do when he come back the second time to execute judgment upon all and to convince all or convict all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He said, listen, judgment is coming and it's coming not the first time Messiah comes when he comes as the, uh, uh, the Lamb of God, but it's coming the second time he comes as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And, and uh, this is the seventh from Adam. You remember the Bible says that Enoch walked with God. He was so close with God uh, that the Bible, you go there and read uh, in that fifth chapter of Genesis, uh, I believe it's the fifth chapter, how that it says it'll give the lifespan of, uh, say, Adam, and then the lifespan of Seth, and the lifespan of Enos and Canaan, and right down the line, and it says they died. But then we get to, uh, we get to, uh, uh, Enoch, and it says, and he was not, for God took him. Uh, he was translated, uh, God, God, uh, he walked so close with God that God said, hey man, I want you just to come on right up now, just come up and be with me right now. Just translated straight from, from earth, uh, right up to heaven. With a picture for us of what's going to happen at the re at the uh, second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the resurrection for those of us who may be alive and remain. We're going to know just exactly what happened to Enoch and just what exactly what happened to Elijah. Because if you're alive and remain when the Lord comes back, you're going to be translated up just like he is. That's what the Word of God says. Yeah, it wasn't just. And, and here's the other thing to remember too. You think like the, the Word of God, uh, Moses began uh, writing the Word of God about 1500 years B.C. And so we go back to the early accounts of Genesis, and when you think about it, you had some really long lifespans there. Uh, you had uh, uh, Enoch's son, Methuselah, 
Uh, the Bible says that Enoch was 65 years old when he had Methuselah, and he was with uh, he was lived 300 years with Methuselah before the Lord translated him. Uh, do you think that maybe in those 300 years, maybe this subject came up? You think that uh, that Enoch may have taught his son Methuselah, "Hey, the Lord is coming with ten thousands of his saints." And then when we think about the fact that Methuselah's lifespan, 969 years, was so long that he that he was alive during Adam's time, and he was also alive, he lived all the way up until the year the flood came. So it very well could have been that Methuselah was actually building the ark with Noah. Could have been. And so this, this idea of the second coming, it was preached throughout the book of Genesis uh, in, the, in the antediluvian world. It was. The second coming of Christ. Then we go to uh, the book of Job. And we see that Job makes this statement in verse in chapter 19. And to me, this is one of my favorite parts of the entire book of Job. Chapter 19, verse, verse 25, where Job has this exclamation that he makes. He says, for I know, I know that my Redeemer liveth. If you're saved tonight, you can say that right along with Job, can't you? I know. That my Redeemer liveth. I don't have to say, well, I think, maybe, uh, I, I kind of feel like it could be so. We say, I know my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand upon the earth in the latter day. Now remember, a lot of Bible scholars believe that this is the oldest written book in the Bible. And here's Job talking about the resurrection. He says, he says, I know my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. He said, you know what? I'm going to die and I'm going to go into the ground and the worms are going to just annihilate this corpse. But I'm going to be raised from the dead with a new body. And in that new body, in my flesh, I'm going to see God for myself. So here's Job from the Old Testament, oldest book, talking, indicating about the resurrection and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So... You know, we see that the Old Testament prophets certainly preached about that second coming that Peter was talking about and trying to stir up their pure minds about. And then we look to the New Testament and we see, of course, that the Lord Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 24, spending almost the entire chapter uh, talking about his second coming. And that was his great prophecy during his personal ministry was that second was his second coming. But it wasn't just him. We look to the New Testament. And you can find the subject of the second coming in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, in John, in Acts, in 1 Corinthians. Uh, you can find it in uh, Philippians, in Colossians, in uh, uh, James, in Hebrews, in First and Second Timothy, in Titus, in Jude, in 1 John, and in the book of Revelations. You can find the second coming in all of those books. Is that something that we might need our pure minds stirred up about tonight? I mean, John talked about it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 28. He talked about the second coming, one of the apostles. The apostle Paul spent almost the entire books of First and Second Thessalonians talking about the subject matter of the second coming. I mean, my goodness, we even had the angels in Acts chapter 1. And uh, they said, why stand ye here? After Jesus ascended, they said, why stand ye here gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus that you saw go, he's going to come back the very same way. The angels were even witnessing to the second coming. 
I mean, it wasn't just the Old Testament prophets. It just wasn't the apostles. The angels were talking about it. The Lord Jesus talked about it. I mean, this thing was not done in a corner. He says, I want you to remember that. He said, knowing this first, here's the first thing to remember, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. He said that these scoffers, also some uh, are translated as mockers, um, in the in the Greek, it means childish trifler. To trifle means to act or talk without seriousness. Uh, there's a reference to levity, to act or talk with a lack of due seriousness or consideration. I'll tell you, the, the scoffer today has not really thought about, they've not really given this due consideration, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that as we get a little farther into this scripture. But really, the scoffer is nothing more than a defense mechanism uh, for the love of their own sin. The scoffer. He even says here, he says that they, they, there shall come in the last day scoffers walking or their manner of living shall act, shall be after their own lusts. Now, lust by definition is an excessive it's an excessive desire. And you know, like for instance, we find in the Bible, we find that uh, a, a very um, a very well-defined uh, idea of what is godly sexuality. We find that right in the Scriptures, right in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. What is it, verse 4 there? It says, marriage is honorable and all, and the bed undefiled. Uh, but uh, whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. So the Hebrew writer told you just exactly what uh, the boundaries for godly sexuality were there, but lust is the excessive desire. It's desire for something outside the bounds of the marriage bed. And we find that all over the place, right? We find adultery outside the bounds of the marriage bed uh, with someone that you're not married to, fornication between two people that aren't married, homosexuality, you got the, you got the wrong gender there. And these, these lusts, uh, this is what makes people scoffers at their core. If someone is a scoffer of the Scriptures or of the Lord Jesus, he's telling you right here what some of the root causes of that is. It's a love for sin. It's a love for sin. And their reasoning, the scoffer's reasoning, saying, where is the promise of His coming? Where is the Lord Jesus at? You, you talk to people very much about the second coming. Maybe you've had that question asked to you. I remember when I was in seventh grade, my teacher said, where is he at? I've heard about it my whole life. When's he coming back? And the reasoning. He, it says, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. The scoffer believes that, that there has never been an intervention of God in time uh, for the history of humanity. The scoffer believes that the sun comes up and the sun goes down. And the hours turn into days and the days turn into weeks and the weeks turn into months and the months turn into years and the seasons continue and that it's always been that way. And they think that it will always continue to be that way. That's what they think. But he says, for this, they willingly are ignorant of. They're willingly ignorant. And he's going to give us a couple of examples here about how that God did intervene in time in the past. 
And he says they're willingly ignorant of them. Well, how are they willingly ignorant? Ignorant does not have knowledge. Willfully here means that they are just in unbelief. They just don't, un- they just don't believe the facts. The psalmist in the 19th Psalm said the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament or the expanse or the sky, the atmosphere showeth his handiwork and there's not a place on earth where that language doesn't speak clearly. And no, and so there's, there's no excuse is there for anybody. People can't say, well, I wasn't raised in church. My mother and father didn't tell me about it. Uh, I didn't have uh, the upbringing. It doesn't matter. You got two eyes, you look up into the sky and you see that there's a hand of a mighty creator there and you need to find out how to know him. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 1 verse 20. He said, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There is no excuse. The invisible things. Were you there when God created the world? Nope, neither was I. But the invisible things of Him are clearly seen by us in looking in the things that have been made. We look into the world and see uh, simple things like the symbiotic relationship between men and uh, humanity and vegetation. We take in oxygen and leave off carbon dioxide and vegetation takes in carbon dioxide and leaves out oxygen. And without that cycle... Earth would have a hard time sustaining life, wouldn't it? We look at the precipitation cycle that goes with with um, evaporation and condensation and rain, and we see that life would have a hard time being sustained on Earth without that. And we see in all of that, we see the hand of this wonderful creator and designer. And so there is no excuse. There's no excuse for any of us. No one will go to the judgment and tell God, well, I didn't know. I wasn't exposed. For we all have ample opportunity to see Him, to know Him, and to seek Him. What examples did he give here? He says, he says they were willingly or ignorant of that by the Word of God, by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. The first example that Peter says is here, he says, God did intervene. They're wrong. They got their facts. They got their facts wrong. God has intervened. He intervened in the very beginning. In the creation. In Genesis chapter 1. Go back there for a minute. In Genesis chapter 1, remember it says, It says in the beginning, this is Genesis 1 and 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth, check this, the earth was without form and void. It was empty. It was, it didn't, it wasn't designed at that point. It was just a ball of elements. And darkness was upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, in my mind, the earth at that point was nothing but a dark, uh, water ball. It was nothing but a dark water ball. And you see that in day two, God begins in, in, in his intelligent design, he begins to design and move things around so that, uh, that the earth will sustain life and promote life. And notice what it says. It says in, in verse six, and God said, let there be a firmament. There's the sky again, the atmosphere, the expanse. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. And let it divide the waters from the waters. 
And God made the firmament, divided the waters that were under the firmament from the waters that were above the firmament, and it was so. And that was the second day. So God began to divide this water ball and put some water up and some water down and an atmosphere in between. Now, the other thing, and he did that by his word. He did that by his word. And I'm going to tell you something tonight. You're going to have to believe that. If you're lost tonight, you're going to have to believe that if you want to get saved. You're going to have to believe that God is the creator of the earth. Uh, in this world of deception that we live in, so many times uh, people try to ride the fence and say, well, I believe in evolution and I also believe in God. Listen, God didn't need evolution to create the world. God didn't need anything to create the world except His Word. His, he's all-powerful, and that's all He needed. And I want to prove that to you in the, in the Hebrew letter, chapter 11, that Brother Derek referenced here earlier. The Hebrew letter, chapter 11, verse 3. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were made of things which do appear. Don't you find it interesting that God put that in His Word in the chapter that elevates and exalts faith? Don't you find that interesting tonight? Listen, God created the world. And you've got to have to believe that if you want to seek Him for salvation. You let this evolution stuff go. Evolution promotes death and said that death is a good thing in the world. I don't know about you, but I've never found anything dead that I found was positive and productive and good. Notice in 2 Peter, he says, verse 6, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Now Peter says it wasn't just the intervention of God in the creation, but God also intervened during the great flood. Let's go to Genesis chapter 7. I want to read you a verse there in verse 11. Genesis chapter 7, verse 11 says this, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. You see what God just did right there? He took what He had done at the creation and split them, and He just reversed it. All He did was reverse what He would already done. He brought the water that was above and the water from below. He brought them both together and there was a flood there. (laughs) It wasn't that hard for God. God can do anything. God intervened. They don't think God has ever intervened. God has intervened. And this is just two examples. There's others. Remember that place in the scripture where he caused the sun to go backwards for a while? but the heavens and the earth. So you have to understand that history to understand what's going to happen in the future. But the heavens and the earth, which are right now, by the same word of God, the same word of God that created this earth, that same powerful word of God has a reservation on the earth and the skies right now. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, 
reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, if you understand God's intervention in the past and his power, his omnipotent power in the past, by that very same omnipotent power, he has a reservation on this earth and the heavens for not water, but for fire. He does. He does. And that's going to happen at the judgment day, at the second coming of Christ. And he says the perdition, which means the future uh, misery or eternal death of men. Those, the wicked that are punished at the second coming of Christ on the judgment day. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And I understand a lot of times people look at this verse and they try to take it literally, but I believe that uh, the Peter's just saying this. He's saying that time is not a constraint of God's. God is not constrained by time. Time was created. Time is for created beings. That's for us. It's not for God. God's the uncreated one. He's always existed. The time is for us to consider. It's not. God's not bothered by time. And he makes the reference here to where is he at? Why hasn't he come back yet? Well, first of all, because time doesn't mean anything to him. And second of all, because he says here, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. It's not that God forgot what he said he was going to do. God doesn't forget. God's omniscient. He knows all things. Uh, God, He's not lazy. He didn't forget. Uh, The Bible says that He cannot lie. In Titus chapter 1 verse 2, God who cannot lie. He's not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness, but the reason that He hasn't come back is because of His great mercy and His great love, the great manifestations of His character, His long-suffering and patience for mankind. Why? Because He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Isn't it just like men and women? Isn't it just like us as sinful flesh and humanity? Isn't it just like us to mock God for His wonderful love that He's exerted toward us? I mean, the mocker mocks Him for His great love and His great grace that's been extended to them. Why hasn't He come back? Because you're lost and God doesn't want you to go to hell. That's why. He's long-suffering to us. Even God's long-suffering has an end. It does. We see judgment exerted all over the place in the Scriptures. Judgment was exerted from God on uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. It was exerted on the angels that sinned. Or excuse me, yeah, the angels that sinned. Uh, Yeah. He's long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I'll tell you, sometimes people think that God is against them. They think that conviction is God being against them. God is not against you. God is for you. God wants you to be saved. He's not willing that any person should die lost and go to hell, but that all should come to saving repentance in Him. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. 
You know, Jesus said, and he was talking about this in Matthew chapter 24. He said this about this very subject. He said in verse 37, but as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the son of man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the son of man be. It's going to be sudden. That's why you're called to prepare for it right now. The coming is going to be sudden. If you knew the thief was coming to your house to steal your most valuable possessions in this world, certainly you would lock the door. Certainly you would stay up for him. Certainly you'd probably get some weapons available for defense. Friend, if you do that for your earthly possessions, your earthly possessions, the Bible says, moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves do break in and steal. Why don't you take some preemptive action about your most valuable possession, your soul? Remember what Jesus asked, what would a man give for his soul? What is a man profited if he gained the whole world and yet lose his own soul? If you knew the thief was coming, you'd prepare. You know Jesus is coming back. You don't know when, but you know he's coming back. And you know that you've got a date with death. Prepare. Prepare tonight. Notice, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. I love what I read in the scriptures about the, seven, the second coming of Christ. It's always very loud, isn't it? It's always very loud. It's not quiet at all. The voice of archangels. And uh, he says, we're in the heavens being on fire. The heavens. The sky. Uh, space is going to be on fire. And the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that therein shall be burned up. You know what I find so interesting? (laughs) What I find interesting is that, did you know our atmosphere is 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, 0.9 of 1% of argon, and then a, a bunch of other stuff makes up that last little bit, including water vapor and carbon dioxide. Do you know what makes up fire? (laughs) Nitrogen, oxygen, water vapor, and carbon dioxide. Just like he did in the flood, all God has to do is just change the mixture of the elements that are already in our atmosphere, and she's going to be a great big flamethrower. You know that? It's going to be on fire just like that. And it's coming one day. I want you to be prepared tonight. The Lord's coming back. Church, we need to be thinking about the fact that the Lord's coming back and there's a lost and dying world out there that knows nothing about it, that thinks that everything is just going to continue to be just like it always has been, being willfully ignorant of the God that created this world and has intervened multiple times, just like He wants to personally intervene in your life if you're lost. Come and seek the Lord tonight. You don't need a song. You don't need a formal invitation. You don't need a a bunch of pomp and circumstance. If you're lost, come. Come and seek God. Come and seek God. It's my message for you tonight.